book lover. I am so glad you are here listening to my award-winning podcast, Thoughts from a Page, which is a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. This show is a passion project for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoy making it. I only interview authors whose books I have read and enjoyed, so if I am chatting with an author on the main show, it means that I really liked their book and feel comfortable recommending it to you. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I work hard to find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations and to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. Are you looking for an engaging book community with unique bonus content? If so, I hope you will consider joining my Patreon community, which is filled with a wonderful group of readers. I offer three levels, page turners, lit lovers, and royal readers, and each level provides all sorts of cool bonus book content that you will not find elsewhere. If you are interested or want more information, the link to join is in my show notes. Today, Julia Kelly joins me to chat about A Traitor in Whitehall. Julia is the international bestselling author of historical fiction and historical mystery novels about the extraordinary stories of the past. Her books have been translated into 13 languages. In addition to writing, she's been an Emmy-nominated producer, journalist, marketing professional, and for one summer, a tea waitress. Julia called Los Angeles, Iowa, and New York City home before settling in London. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to be read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! Welcome, Julia. How are you today? Uh, it's wonderful to be here. I feel like it's been ages since we've chatted, and that just means that it's been between book releases because the publishing world takes uh, takes so long for new things to come out. <laughs> I know, and I'm so glad you're back. And I loved A Trader in Whitehall, so I can't wait to talk about it. Oh, thank you so much. So why don't we start out with you giving me a quick synopsis for those that haven't read it yet. Well, A Trader in Whitehall is the first book in the Parisian Orphan series, which is a historical mystery series that I've, I've launched with A Trader in Whitehall. It's about my amateur sleuth, Evelyn Redfern. She is a young woman working and living in wartime London. It's September 1940, and she is uh, recruited from her job in a munitions factory by a mysterious friend of her, uh, her parents. Her, her mother has passed away. Her father is estranged. So this is the first time she's seen this man for a long time. But he recruits her to kind of be his eyes and ears in the cabinet war rooms, which is Churchill's secret underground bunker. She doesn't really know why he wants her to do this. He's very cryptic. He doesn't give away much, but she knows that what she's doing must be important in some way or another. What she doesn't realize is that uh, on her second shift on the job in the typing pool, she is going to stumble over a dead body, uh, the murdered body of one of her fellow typists. And this, of course, triggers a murder investigation. And Evelyn, being the dedicated uh, detective fiction and mystery reader that she is, 
she becomes very unimpressed with the investigators who are sent in to figure out who the killer in this very secret, very enclosed environment is. And so she takes it upon herself to go ahead and try to figure out who the killer is and also stop a, a mole who is working in the cabinet war rooms trying to undermine Britain's efforts in the war. So my first question for you is, after writing historical fiction for a while, why did you decide to tackle a historical mystery? Well, I've always been a great lover of mystery novels. Um, I come by it very honestly. My mother is a great, great reader of mystery of all type. My father also loves mysteries, and I've been reading them for a very long time. I sort of came to historical fiction, which we've talked about before, through having uh, read and written some romance and really wanting to explore some different stories within historical fiction. So a lot of uh, what women were doing during the war, sort of big emotional coming of age or you know major turning point in a woman's life. Uh, that's usually what I focus on. With this, I had this idea for a mystery that I actually I actually got the idea while I was at the cabinet war rooms because it's now the Churchill War Rooms, uh, a museum in London. I'd been before, and my friend Mary said, "Well, I've never been. Do you want to come along with?" And so I was tagging along with her, and she was reading all the exhibition signs, and I was looking around, and I I had that strange writerly thing where I just thought to myself, you know, this would be a really really great place to set a murder mystery, and um, that is the seed by which the by which a trader in Whitehall started. So I think I probably was maybe destined to always want to write mystery. Actually, getting to that point, of course, is a very different thing. And I sat on that idea for about two years because, of course, when I had the idea, I was working full time at a day job and I was also writing historical fiction. And I thought, just thought, I can't add another string to my bow. This is just going to be too much. So in June of 2021, I was fortunate enough to be able to quit my day job and go over to writing full time. I took about a month off to recalibrate a bit on the very good advice of a friend uh, who had done the same thing. And the first week I got back, I wrote the pitch for A Trader in Whitehall and the Parisian Orphan series and sent it to my agent. She said, great. And we were, we were off to the races. Well, I am so glad that you said it in the cabinet war rooms because I love visiting there. And I think it's such a clever premise because all of these people went down there working for the government during the war to escape harm. And instead, you have the idea that some kind of harm happens down there. You know, I've always loved locked room mysteries and also country house mysteries where you're sort of isolated and there's a cast of characters and you know that somehow, some way, the mystery unfolded with these people. You don't know how. And I, I loved the challenge of that. So I figured, you know, what a better place to, to set a mystery than a, than a location that was guarded heavily. It was so secret, people didn't even know about it until it was declassified. And then, of course, became a museum. Nobody could talk about what they were doing down in the cabinet war rooms. Uh, you know, everybody from the ministers straight down to the typists to the, you know, custodial staff, cooks in the canteen, they kept this incredible secret. So to have such a huge breach of of that secrecy and 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 sort of as you say you know safety that people thought they were safe in this underground concrete bunker that sat under Whitehall i think uh, that added a, an extra level of danger shall we say most definitely well i want to talk more about the bunker and everything in your research but i first want to talk about evelyn so creating her backstory she has the most fascinating backstory tell me all about that and then also making her a big reader 
that's clearly been resonating with the people that have picked up your book. So tell me all about that. Well, I'm so glad that people have resonated with that. I knew from the moment I started writing Evelyn, I wanted to write her story in first person, which is something new for me. I've always written in in a very close third person, but third person. And the reason that was so important was I, I really wanted to play around with voice and give her a liveliness and an intelligence that hopefully comes through on the page. And also just give a sense that she is on one hand, a very normal young woman, and on the other hand, you know, really, really well suited for this life as an amateur sleuth, as she finds out through the course of the book. So I, I kind of threw a lot of stuff in there. You know, I, I talk to people sometimes who are aspiring authors, and they ask about, you know, where do you get your ideas from? And often I, I say, you know, you, you read really widely, and you watch a lot of things, and you listen to a lot of things, and you talk to a lot of people, and this is a real example of that. So. She has elements of His Girl Friday thrown in with some will-they-won't-they they romance with my sidekick that I've given her, David Poole. She has a backstory, as you say, that kind of has her having lived as a notorious child, actually, based on elements of you know a fictionalized version of Gloria Vanderbilt, who was you know deemed the spoiled little rich girl or poor little rich girl in the papers because she was at the center of this incredibly publicized custody battle in the 1920s so i took elements of her backstory but basically evelyn is a young woman who is trying to make her way in the world her beloved uh, french mother dies when she is just about to become a teenager and she is dumped in an english boarding school by her estranged kind of ne'er-do-well adventurer father, Sir Reginald. And she has to sort of figure out who she is. And and I like to think that a trader in Whitehall is really coming into her own and figuring out um, who she is. And and part of that is uh, a young woman who has ambitions to use these these skills as a reader. She's been a dedicated detective fiction reader her whole life. She has some strong opinions about <laughs> Uh, the quality of of different books, and um, she loves you know Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers, and hopefully people who also love those books will enjoy some uh, some title name dropping throughout the uh, throughout the book as Evelyn tells us the story of how she came to be and also um, what she's reading at the moment. Yes, I just loved that, and I am a fan of Agatha Christie in particular, and I've read a couple of the Dorothy L. Sayers books, but also just that she's such a big reader, you know, for somebody like me who brings a book everywhere I go. It just, mm-hmm. I loved that about her, that she also brings a book everywhere she goes. That was always a family rule that you had to have a book on you at all times because it meant that you could never be bored. So <laughs> I come by that very honestly. Well, I love that. <laughs> well, talking about the Churchill War Rooms, you obviously toured them again with your friend and you'd been there before. Did you do any other research? I'm assuming the answer is yes. And did you get to do any cool behind the scenes tours? I didn't get to do any behind the scenes, unfortunately. We, When I was really getting into this book, it was still in that hazy, strange period of time. We were out of lockdowns here in the UK, but things were not fully opened up. And it, they sort of went through different rounds of being more or less open. So I, I didn't get to do that, unfortunately. But I'm very lucky that the Imperial War Rooms, which is the the governing sort of group of these museums, including the the Churchill War Rooms, they have produced an absolutely fantastic museum catalog, and they also have a really extensive online collection with lots of articles written about things. 
And it's just been incredibly, incredibly helpful in trying to piece together what life would have been like in the CWR uh, while these people were working, specifically in roles like typists, which get a lot less attention from historians and, and maybe should be more widely known. Well, isn't that always the case, that trying to find out the information about what the women did is so much more difficult than what the men did? It is. It is. And it's a real shame because they're, what they did was fascinating. You know, this was, of course, in an era before, you know, Xerox and copy machines. You could technically make copies, but you had to create a stencil and it was a very laborious, long process. And so what happened was, you know, meeting notes, uh, you know, handwritten memos, all sorts of things would come into the typing pool via a supervisor. And then they would, of course, be from across all sorts of different departments. And the supervisor would distribute that work to the women in the typing pool who would then uh, go through, type up those documents. They had to be perfect. They had to be exact. They were under a huge amount of pressure. And they were also seeing incredibly secretive material come across their desks. And they were churning it out to make sure that they kept up with the incredible volume of, of information that was needed. In some cases, you know, the typing pool would run 24 hours a day. And even while the Blitz was going on above ground uh, in London, and, and the Blitz starts during this book, you know, typists would continue working away, uh, even while the air raid sirens were going and people were under, under warnings. Can you even imagine you can hear all of that above you? It's so frightening and you're still having to just pound away on the typewriter. Absolutely. They were absolutely... It's one of the things that's always really fascinated me about World War II, and, and one of the reasons that I've written so much about it is the idea that completely ordinary people, and you know, I've met readers and friends whose mothers, grandmothers, aunts, uncles, fathers, people who were just ordinary, normal people did incredible things uh, during the war that you kind of, if you had told them at some point in their lives, they would be doing this, they never would have even imagined. Um, and so it's just such a, it's such a, a strange time and a fascinating time. And I think trying to, I walk around London because I live here and, and I think about, you know, what it would have been like to see, you know, planes in the sky and the air raid sirens going and to have had one of these types of roles that would have just been completely different from what I expected my life to be. Uh, and it must have just been so, so strange and so frightening, but also for a lot of women, a really interesting opportunity to get into the workplace and to do things that they wouldn't have societally been able to do before, before the war broke out. So it's a very, very complex time. And I think one that keeps people coming back again and again because of that complexity. The part that I think would be so difficult would be just walking down the street and seeing these half bombed out buildings where, mm -hmm. you know, the way they're described where half the buildings left and furniture is hanging out and just realizing someone's home is just gone. And often the people that were in it. Absolutely. And, and it's one of those things, again, because, you know, I live in London in 2023. I remember when I was working in my day job, I was chatting with a man who had just come on board and he had grown up in Balham. And he remembers Balham in the 80s and 90s. And there were still areas that were undeveloped because they'd been hit by a bomb. And so it was just an empty lot. Now, you know, that's a very desirable area of London now. So it's sort of impossible to imagine what that would have been like. But even decades after the war, you still had areas that were that that hadn't been rebuilt. And and in fact, this book is set on the the entrance to the the cabinet war rooms and and the Churchill War Rooms Museum now uh, is is on horse guards, which is right across from St. James Park. 
And a couple of weeks ago, uh, as of when we're recording this, somebody found an unexploded grenade in St. James Park and it had to be evacuated. I mean, this is what London is like sometimes. It's not that unusual to find unexploded bombs and grenades and different things. And of course, they you know vacate the area and they do a controlled explosion and all of those things. But you do get a bit of a reality check about what what happened here and uh, what that might have been like every once in a while. Okay, that's totally crazy. It is. It's it's really it's really strange, and it's also such a part of life here. Like, obviously, it's a very very big deal, and you know nobody wants <laughs> nobody wants something to happen because of something unexploded. But this is at least the third or fourth time I've heard of of something like this since I've been living in London. So it's not uncommon. It's not common, but it's not uncommon. Well, and it makes sense because the war did really impact the city for a long time. Absolutely. So how is writing a mystery different than writing standard historical fiction? Well, (laughs) a couple of things. Uh, When I went to write the pitch, the first version of it, I sat down and I wrote, I usually write a sort of, I write a synopsis to try to get everything out of my head and onto the page and make sure that I have a full story. It's not just a you know great beginning and a great ending with a lot of hand waving in the middle um, because I've run myself into some trouble in the past when I've when I've done that, uh, not really knowing where the book is supposed to go. So I really try to flesh out what it is that I want to write. So usually it ends up being about maybe seven, eight, nine pages, single spaced. And I wrote it all down and I looked at it. And I thought, well, you can really figure out who the murderer is because I only have like four characters named on the page here. <laughs> I thought, all right, that's a little different than, than historical fiction where you do tend to really focus in on you know, who are going to be your characters who have the biggest emotional turning points or kind of prompt realizations for the main character. So I had to, I had to step back and I had to sort of build a cast of characters, a cast of suspects for myself and some, you know, helpers and some witnesses and various other people. So that was one lesson. And then the other was, you know, normally I would focus on really closely on the emotional arc of my main character and sort of these big moments of realization. And that's really what I hang the story on and kind of build out from there. And in this case, it was actually, you know, what are the turning points in the case? What are the red herrings? What are the moments where, you know, we think that the mystery is solved, but it's not? And how do I keep everything from rushing to the conclusion too quickly? And so it was a very different process from from writing a historical novel in that regard. And then, you know, of course, the, the writing of the book, at some point, you have to sit down, and you have to write the book. And so that felt very familiar. But certainly when it came to when it came to putting all the pieces together and trying to make sure I was answering all the questions and you know tying up knots and making sure that you know I knew why characters had done certain things it was a bit of a different exercise it was really focusing on the puzzle dropping in the red herrings making sure when you got to the end to reveal the villain that the reader's like oh that makes sense but they weren't like oh i knew who that was from page 10 Yes, exactly. And I th- I can't remember I'm going to misattribute this because I can't remember who it was, but one of these great, you know, golden age of detective fiction authors said something along the lines of, you know, you want ideally your your reader to have figured out who did it about a half a page before your detective did. So they feel like they really they were really in on it, they really got it, and then the big reveal happens and they can feel so smug about the fact that they figured it out. Uh, a half a page before the detective. And I thought, okay, well, I'll, I will, I will 
aim for that. We'll see how I how I do about actually hitting that. I like that. I'm not sure I've heard that before. I'll have to figure out who it was who I read. I, I read so much in researching this because I, I thought my knowledge of golden age fiction was pretty good. It needed some some padding out. Let's just put it that way. It's a bit like sitting down and thinking you really know a subject and then realizing that you need to do a bit more, a bit more background reading because everything that you thought you knew is about 15, 20 years out of date. Um, so I had read a huge number of Agatha Christie's when I was sort of 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. I've gone through a huge amount of her backlist, but not only can I not use all of that backlist because the book is set in 1940 and she had such a long career, she was writing for so long, I also didn't remember elements. And so I had a really fun time going back and rereading a lot of books and discovering some new to me novels as well for authors who I thought Evelyn might enjoy. I also think it's really different to read to enjoy versus to read for research when you're actually going to be writing about it is very different than just reading the story for enjoyment. Absolutely. I think, you know, you're you're looking for different things certainly and there's a difference between that story just uh, just washing over you as opposed to going, okay, structurally, what are they doing here that is making it so that this all works out in the end? Exactly. Like I don't think about the second part of that at all when I read. No. <laughs> but I could see where you would need to. <laughs> yes. Well, what surprised you the most when writing this one? I think I, I, this is going to sound so silly, but I just really enjoyed it. I was shocked at how much I enjoyed the sort of breath of fresh air that was writing first person narrative, how much I enjoyed writing Evelyn in particular, and how much I enjoyed the mental challenge of uh, the puzzle that comes from mystery. And so I think it was a really wonderful counterbalance to um, some of the other books that I, I have been writing, because as I was writing this book, I was also writing my most recent historical fiction book, The Lost English Girl. And they're very, very different. And I think that difference really helps as an author keep things fresh and keep things interesting. So I, I actually ended up finding out I absolutely love the balance of doing doing both and kind of moving back and forth between historical mystery and historical fiction. You just led me into my next question, because I was ah. going to ask you, are you going to keep writing both? So you wrote them at the same time? Sort of. I, I had a bit of a mad publishing schedule where I, I wrote The Lost English Girl and I thought, I've, I've done this before. I can go ahead and write this. I'll be fine. I quit my job. And it turns out that when you quit your day job and you've been writing for 10 years with a day job, you take all of the structure out of your you know, best laid plans. So I knew how to write a book working, you know, and snatching time in the evenings and on the weekends. And it sounds very strange and it is very, very privileged to have this problem, but writing when you have a working day ahead of you rather than just a snippet of time, it leaves you with a lot of time to overthink, a lot of time to kind of waffle a bit. And I think I did both. So I, I ended up putting some discipline back into my life, which was helpful. Uh, with The Lost English Girl. And then when that book was turned in, I moved on to uh, A Trader in Whitehall. So I was able to kind of move between the two with a bit of a, a break. I think there was a Christmas and New Year break between the two. But I actually, as opposed to finding it exhausting, I found it really, really invigorating to be doing something different. So my hope is to continue to do both if publishers are kind and will allow me to do both and readers still want to read both. Well, that's impressive. Thank you. Sometimes it feels a bit mad, but in a good way. Absolutely. Well, tell me about the title and the cover. Well, it's a poorly kept secret that every book that I have ever written has gone to press with a completely different title from what I initially thought it would be. 
this book was actually untitled uh, for a very long time because I just didn't know what I wanted to name it. And my publisher came up with the title. So A Trader in Whitehall is, of course, all about a hint at what you'll find in the book. So I did mention that there is a, there's a mole at the heart of this story as well. So there are kind of a couple different cases going on at once. Um, and Whitehall is the kind of, in the same way that somebody would say, you know, you're working in Washington uh, in the US, Whitehall is sort of the center of government and where all the action was happening. So that's where the where the cabinet war rooms bunker is. And so it was a, an important part of that as well. When it comes to the cover, I absolutely love the cover for a couple of reasons. One of which is I just think it looks fabulous. I don't know if this is actually the case, but I think that the woman on it looks rather like one of the women on the cover of my first historical novel, The Light Over London. And so to me, it's a really nice nod to, to that connection. No idea if that was intentional or not, but um, you know, this cover went through a couple of iterations. I'm looking at it right now. And originally, um, it's very subtle, but, but there was no lipstick and there was no flower. It was just the Spitfires going over the bridges and Big Ben. And so I, I was looking at it and my agent was looking at it and she said, you know, there's a little bit of lightness and a little bit of wit to this book. And I'm not sure that that's coming out right now. So she emailed my publisher and she said, you know, how would you feel about adding an element? And that's where we got the lipstick and the flower. So Evelyn's knowing smile um, is on the cover and the flower has made it to both Evelyn's hat and also on the spine as well. Um, and hopefully that gives readers a little touch of the sort of wit and humor that they'll find in the book as well. It, it has some very serious subject matter in it. Of course, it's set during war, it's set during the Blitz, but there's another touch to it as well that we wanted to hint at. That's why I always love to ask this question because so much goes into covers and I don't think people always realize that. And it's fun to hear some of the behind the scenes. Well, and I think people don't realize how little most authors have to do with their covers because I'll be completely honest, I am not a visual arts person. I am a words person. And so, you know, I don't leave me, don't leave me with a cover and expect something good to come out of it. So I, I have a huge amount of admiration for the art department. And I think my agent was spot on about a little touch here and a little touch there, but really it was, uh, it was almost almost there from the moment we saw it. So I, I've been very, very lucky in that regard. Well, before we wrap up, Julia, what have you read recently that you really liked? Well, I have to say I read one book that has sort of overshadowed everything else because it's just been so incredibly fantastic. I don't know if it's getting the same attention in the US as it is here, but it's Alice Wins In Memoriam, which is a book about two young men who are together in boarding school and they have this kind of secret unrequited love between the two of them. Neither knows about this. Uh, and they're sent off at various times to the front in World War I. And it's about them kind of their lives when they come together and, and are separated and what happens to them during the war. And I, ju I just thought it was beautiful. It's wonderfully written. It's wonderfully researched historical fiction. If people are interested in, in World War I in particular, I thought it was incredibly well handled, beautifully written. I just can't rave about it enough. I really, really think it's a fantastic book. People have been talking about it over here as well. I have no idea comparing there versus here, but mm -hmm. I do know people have been raving about it here. It got a lot of attention here because it won the brand new Waterstones Debut Fiction Prize. So just to give you an idea, it's it's been critically very acclaimed, but also incredibly popular as a as a read. So 
the critical praise and uh, readership seems to be following it. That's always nice when that happens. Absolutely. Well, Julia, thank you so much for coming back on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. It was delightful to chat with you. Oh, thank you so much. I always enjoy this. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. I would love to connect with you on Instagram or Facebook, where you can find me at Thoughts From a Page. If you enjoy the show, please consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. If you have a moment to rate the show or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts, I would really appreciate it. It makes a big difference. And please tell all of your friends about Thoughts From a Page. Word of mouth does wonders to help the show grow. The book discussed in this episode can be purchased at my bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. I hope you'll tune in next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. All right, I think that was good enough. I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no, right.